Okay, you want to turn with me to Psalm 95, please? We're continuing on in our series in the Psalms. This is week number nine. We are, com- we are finishing, we are coming to an end, a conclusion of our series next week, where we'll be together at the Villa Cesar in Cherville, right behind the uh, Home Depot. And that service will be at 10 o'clock, so do not come here. You'll be alone, you'll be by yourself, and you'll have to head farther south quickly. But uh, that service will be at 10 o'clock, and so we will be celebrating with Living Word and Cross Point together. And it is a grand celebration. We love getting together as churches. Uh, it's just a good time of, of rejoicing at what God has done, celebrating His Word together. Uh, it's just good to get, to get together with other people who are worshiping the Lord. All right, Psalm 95. Before I get into Psalm 95, we are... As a church, we have we started here about a year and a couple weeks ago. And so as the time has progressed, we moved to, to two services because we are unable to fit everyone here in this building at one time. And so because of that, we've going to two services. It's, it's made this service fairly full. It's made the, the first service a little empty at times. And so we've really been feeling like God would have us to move back together into one service again. But that's not going to happen in this building. Um, we, by law, we're only allowed to have 100 people here in this room. And so as we've grown larger than 100, we need to, um, we need to go to some place that will allow us to do that. And so that being said, we are in the process of looking for another location. I think we found one. There's a building behind uh, the post office on Kennedy Avenue in Highland that uh, we are able to rent for four hours a Sunday morning. No one else is running the place, so we'll be able to keep our stuff there. I think it's going to work. We'll, I'll let you know. We'll find out this week. But this is God's provision to us. We're going to move back to one service. We're, we are a body, and I believe there's people here that come to the first service who, don't, who do not know you, and you don't know them. And I feel like, man, for us to move forward as a body, we need to come back together again as one as one body, as one, as one, one person. And so we're going to do that. Now that may mean a little more work for us, of course, but, uh, the Lord willing, we will, we'll figure that out as we go. But we are here today. We are here as a church plant, not because we feel like God has brought us to a hundred people and we're done. God, we've done the mission. We've filled the building. Now we're good. God has yet a harvest for us. God is yet working in our midst. And God is yet able to, to continue to, to, to bring people to salvation, to knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we want to be a part of that with all that we are. And so we, are going, we will be moving soon, but we're going to let you know all about that. Okay, Psalm 95, starting for the third time. I'm going to read and then we're going to pray. Oh, come... Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. 
O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we are thankful that you've given us your word to instruct, to reveal Jesus. We are thankful that your word is speaking, that your word is not dormant, but is active. And so we would ask this morning that you would penetrate our hearts with your word. We also ask that you would remove distractions, hindrances, open our eyes to see the glory written across every page of Scripture. And Lord, we just give thanks, God, because you are good and faithful. And your word endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Psalm 95, it's a song of praise. It's a corporate song. But I look at this, I look at this passage and I kind of break it into three sections. So in the beginning, there's, in verses 1 through 5, there's a, a call to praise God joyfully for who He is. And then in verses 6 and 7, we are called to humble ourselves before Him because of who we are to Him. Then lastly, we're given an exhortation, a call to keep a responsive heart to God's voice. It's a warning against disobedience. It's a very serious warning. So we're going to start off by looking at a call to praise. This is an invitation to us. We start this passage with this continued refrain. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise with him a song of praise. There's this constant refrain of let us come. Let us praise. Let us worship. Let us come before the Lord. This is invitation over and over and over again. And this is for us an expression of praise. Why do we sing the way that we do on a Sunday morning? Why, why, do we, why does Adam, as we're singing, instruct us and, and, and encourage us to make a joyful noise, to sing out to the Lord a cry of praise? Is that just something that he made up on the spot? Hopefully it works out for everybody. No, we see in passages of Scripture like this, that God is saying this is appropriate response to who I am. This is appropriate. Now, we believe that praise and worship is much bigger than a Sunday morning experience for half an hour, 45 minutes. It is much bigger than that. Our lives are a song of praise to the Lord. Everything we do has the potential to be worship unto God. Everything. Everything we do, our lives, day in and day out, minute by minute, there is an opportunity to worship the Lord. But like this, what this passage is doing, though, I believe is we, we're going to talk about the corporate time together. So I believe this is an invitation for us as we come together corporately. So let's look at the different expressions of praise. 
It says, make a joyful noise. This is an opportunity for us to respond where you can't contain yourself. There's times when, when we are worshiping God that we just, it's just bubbling up and it's, it's brimming over in us. And I believe part of that response in us is not because we show up on Sunday morning half awake, tired, singing some songs. Now, okay, God's bubbling up inside of me and I feel... No, I believe it's because we have been meditating on God's word and in his presence throughout the week. And when the time comes for us to worship on a Sunday morning, there is an explosion in our hearts. There is an explosion of what God's doing. There's a joyful noise that you can't contain yourself any longer. Because we have, in a sense, the pump has been primed all week and we are ready to go. Not only that, but he says, enter his presence with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. As we remember the work of God in our lives and in Scripture, it will produce a thanksgiving. I think so often in my own life, there's just a focus on the here and now, what's going on, how am I feeling, what am I doing? And I completely forget what God has done, how God has saved me and redeemed me. He's drawn my life from the pit, from disobedience and emptiness, fruitlessness. God has done work, and that produces thanksgiving in us. Not only that, as we look into his word and we see all that God has done in Jesus Christ, how God has given his son to die on the cross for our sins, He's made a way of life for us and filled us with his spirit, there should be a thanksgiving that bubbles up in our hearts as we, as we consider who God is. Not only that, but songs of praise. When I, think, when, I, when I hear about these things that it begins to talk about, it's just a joyful explosion that happens when we begin to consider who God is. We should be singing loudly. We should be, we should be belting these songs out. This isn't just, uh, if we look at this passage, he's not just talking about people who just kind of sit back and I don't really like this song. I thought, we, I thought we sang this three weeks in a row and... Man, that drum just missed a beat, and Adam's voice is off, and man, it just we can so easily do that. What he's talking about is we fix our eyes upon Jesus. There should be an explosion, a cry of celebration and rejoicing for who Jesus is. And I want to ask you, I don't want to I want to ask myself this. Do we approach God this way? Is my worship anything less than this? When when the psalmist begins to describe appropriately our response of worship to God. Am I worshiping this way? Have I given myself to this? Do we worship God this way? I wrote this down. If our worship is little, then our view of God is too small. So often we come before God and we don't even, we, we don't verbalize. We don't even have to even formulate in our mind. But if our worship is little, I would question, what's our view of God? Who is God? And in this passage, he goes on to say, In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea he made it, and the hands formed the dry land. He begins to describe some things, the greatness and glory of God, as he's created the earth. But it brings me back, just to, in, in my, in, it brings to mind a, a passage in First Kings, and you don't have to turn there, but... The Syrian army is going to attack Israel. And in this passage, 
Syria comes against Israel. Israel comes and, and waylays the Syrian army, even though they had many more men and they had chariots and horses and kind of advanced military things. And so the king's conclusion of why Israel had beat them, the, the Syrian army, was this. The king of Syria said, well, it's because their God is the God of the hills, but he's not the God of the plains. So what we're going to do is we're going to attack them in the plains because their God is only limited to the hills. And then God, in, in verse twenty, chapter 20, verse 28 of 1 Kings, says, because the king of Syria thinks that I'm only God of the hills and not the plains, when they come against you in the plains, we're going to rout them. And they do. Israel wipes them out. I think it takes out, a, they wipe out 100,000 men in the plains. And it's a good reminder for us. There was a time in my life when I had, I had a good friend of mine not walking with the Lord, not following the things of, things of God at all. And there was a time in my life where I prayed for my friend for, I'd say, two or three years. And there was no change in his life at all. If anything, it got worse. And it got worse, and it, were, it just slowly digressed. And there came a, po- a point in my heart where I said to God, I said, God, he is beyond hope. And therefore, I'm going to give up. I'm praying for him. I'm done. I'm, he's done. I can't, I don't, I don't believe that you can redeem his life where he's at right now. There's no hope for him. And what I was doing in that moment is I was deciding that God was a God of the hills, but not the mountains. There was a point in my life where I thought, God, I can, I'm going to, I keep, I still pray to you. I still believe you can do things. I still believe you can save people, but this one over here is a mountain. And I don't believe you're a God of the mountains. I believe you're a God of the hills. You know what? In spite of my view of God, my small and little view of God, God took hold of this person's life. And this guy is now a member of our church, serving the Lord, They just adopted three orphans from Nicaragua doing some of the hardest ministry I think you could almost possibly do on this earth. And I thank God you are a God of the mountains. You are not God of just the hills or the plains or just the valleys. You are God of everything. There's nothing too difficult for you. When I see my friend Ryan and I think about the time that I did give up on him because I didn't think God would could redeem him, I am reminded of this, of what God in his might and his power can do. As he reached home and took hold of him. And so it's a reminder for us. God is God of the mountains. And not only that, but look at what it says. It says, God is great and greatly to be praised. He's the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods, creator and ruler of all things. This is who God is. So not only do we see God for who he is and in worship and response to his revelation of who he is, but now we look in verses six and seven and we see that we're to humble ourselves before him in light of, of who we are to him. So there's this, there's this humbling, this kneeling down. It says, Oh, come let us worship and bow down. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. There's this, again, there's another call to worship. Let us worship. Let it, there's this continued invitation. Now we see not because of not only who God is, but there's an invitation to worship for who we are to him. And this is how he describes us. He doesn't describe us and call us to worship because we are the massive sharks in his aquarium or the lions in his jungle or the gigantic bears in his forest. We're none of these great creatures that he describes us. He says we're simply the sheep of his hand. We belong in his pasture. There's nothing great and mighty about sheep. There's nothing humble, lowly, defenseless, stupid, easily frightened. That's who he says we are. And I sometimes think, well, if we are this lion and God came to us, it's God's coming to us because we are these ferocious lions who will devour anything. God, you give us something to do, we'll eat it up. That's not what God does. God says, because you're sheep, because you're defenseless, because you're helpless, because there's very little that you can do, I'm going to take hold of you anyways. And my glory will be seen in anything that you do. It's because of that, because that we are sheep of his pasture. He's taken hold of us. And this is who we are. This is what God has done in us. And you know what? Us being his sheep, Jesus is the great fulfillment of the shepherd. He's the messianic shepherd. Us being sheep, we have a shepherd. and His name is Jesus. And shepherds in the West, the way in which they, they bring sheep out and in during the day is in the West, shepherds will have a dog and they will stand behind the sheep and, and drive them out with the dog. But in the Near East where Jesus was, the way in which they led the sheep was the shepherd would go before the sheep. He'd call the sheep out. He'd beckon the sheep to come forward. Call the sheep and the, sh- the sheep would know his name and they would follow the shepherd's voice where he was calling them. I believe that's what God does for us. He doesn't force us out. He doesn't send a pack of dogs ahead of us to make sure we're in line. He graciously and kindly goes before us and calls us forward to himself. And graciously and kindly, no matter what, where we're at, he's calling us. I want to read John 10, 11 through 18. And this is just Jesus describing for us who he is. This is John 10, 11 through 18. It says this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In us as sheep, our great shepherd is Jesus. He is the one who is leading us out. He is the one calling out to us. We'll see that in, in, the, in the coming verses. So this is who we are before God. We're only sheep. What's our response? It's humble, bowing down before God. Complete submission, complete reverence. Whatever God's calling us to do, it's yes, Lord, I'm only a sheep. I'm not a great and mighty animal. I'm just a sheep. Now, we move to the, the end of this passage in verses 8 through 11, and we're giving an exhortation, a, a call to keep a responsive heart to God's voice. And it's a warning for us against disobedience. And this is what he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. So I want to just give a little bit of light in what he's talking about. He's making reference to something that happened in Israel's past. And he's doing so in a way, he's bringing clarification of what happened, what God was thinking. So it's almost a commentary on these passages. But this is out of a a passage of Scripture where the Israelites are on the other side of the Red Sea. And what I want to do is just give you a quick history of what happened in the Israelites' life that brought them to this place. Because as God makes comment and makes... um, direction for them out of this passage i want us to see why was god why was god bringing this kind of serious warning and judgment on the people so i want to back up just a a little bit in the history of israel this is what happened i'll give you a quick snapshot just so you know meribah means contending massa means testing so contending and testing the israelites went to egypt spent 400 roughly 430 years in the land of Egypt, um, most of those years, I believe, were as slaves. As God began to call Israel out of Egypt, as God the shepherd began to call Israel out of Egypt, he did so in a way that was awesome. He, he sent ten plagues to the Egyptian country, the Egyptian people, to demonstrate his power, not only to them, but to the Israelites as well. So first thing God did is turn water into blood, turn all the water in Egypt into blood. Then he sent masses of frogs on the land. Then sent masses of gnats, then flies. Then the Egyptian livestock die. Then the Egyptians begin to get boils on their skin. Then the hail comes and destroys most of the, the crops in Egypt. After that, God sends a huge plague of locusts who eat, who eat up the rest of the crops. Then God sends darkness on the land, so dark it's, you can almost feel it. Then in the end, the 10th plague, God sends um, the destroyer and he wipes out the firstborn of the Egyptians. Not only that, but then after the plagues, the Egyptians make a decision that this is going very badly for us. 
There's something going on with these Israelites that's causing destruction and mass amounts towards us. Therefore, you need to leave. We're sending, get out of here. But on your way out, we're going to give you gold and silver and clothes and whatever you want. Just ask for it. We just want you to get out of here. And so they do. Israel, who is in bondage and slavery with no hope to get out, is in a sense welcomed and sent out the front door by the Egyptians with all the Egyptian stuff. So they leave on their way. God leads the Israelite people by a cloud during the day and a pill of fire by night. And so there's this God in their presence leading them in day and in night and protecting them. Well, they get to the Red Sea, the Israelites do. And as they get to the Red Sea, they didn't bring any boats with them. There was no boats available for them for roughly two and a half million people to cross the Red Sea on. I don't even know if the Titanic would be able, how many trips the Titanic would have to make to do that crossing. But they get there and they realize they can't cross the Red Sea. And in the meantime, the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, made a decision that it was really stupid of them to release all their, all their laborers in the whole country, which is going to lead them to economic ruin. So guess what? We need to go back and get the Israelites and bring them back because we don't, we, don't, we don't like to work and we've had slave labor for the last hundreds of years. So they decide to get in their chariots and go after the Israelites. They do so. God puts a wall and divides and protects the, the Israelites from the Egyptians. The Israelites get to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea in a miraculous fashion. The Israelites walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptians think it's a good idea to follow them. After they just have seen God destroy them and their families and all of their land, they think it's a good idea to follow these guys into the sea when it's parted. Well, they do so. God closed the Red Sea, wipes out the entire Egyptian army. And then after Israel gets to the other side, safe and sound, they realize that they didn't bring enough food along. Okay? So they say, Lord, we need some food. God says, no problem. I'm going to bring enough quail to cover the entire camp so two and a half million people can eat meat as much as they want. And on top of that, I'm also going to send bread from heaven. So every day you're going to wake up and there's going to be heavenly bread on the ground, enough for two and a half million people to eat all they want and then have more for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Well, the Israelites get the quail. They enjoy the quail, eat the quail, get the heavenly bread, eat the bread. But then they realize they don't have enough water because when you eat a lot of meat and bread, you get thirsty. And so they get thirsty in the wilderness and say, God, we're in the wilderness. We need something to drink. But they don't do so in a way that says, Lord, we've seen all that you've done. You've waylaid the Egyptians and sent us out of, miraculously caused us to leave Egypt in a way that they sent us out and gave us all their stuff. We've plundered the Egyptians without raising a finger, crossed the Red Sea, have enough food for two and a half million people to eat. And now what they do is they begin to doubt God and to put God to the test. And they begin to complain and grumble against God. Not only that, but they're going to kill Moses. Moses, why have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? We're going to get you next. And so that's what happens. So in the commentary in Psalms in this passage, they grumbled against God. They doubted his promise of his presence, his protection, and his provision. And it says they did that because their hearts were hard and went astray from the Lord in the hardness of heart in the face of God's goodness and provision has been the temptation of the Israelites 
in every generation since and is ours today. This is our temptation. Some of us here today have seen the Lord do unbelievable things in your life, in your family's life, in your church, around the world. You've seen God do some amazing things. And you've been amazed by them and thought, Lord, this can only be your work. And yet today your heart is hard against the Lord. Your heart has been hardened. And as we look at the Israelites and we think, how stupid. Are you serious? God did all that. I mean, this is God. You're, this is a miracle from beginning to end. How could your hearts now be hard? And you know what? This is, we look at this and think, oh, I would never do that. I mean, if I was an Israelite, I'd be like, I mean, I'm with Mo, I'm on team Moses. I'm like, man, I'm not with these other Israelites. These guys are fools. I'm, you know, like, God, I know you can provide. That's the way we think, don't we? Even as reading this, we've thought to ourselves, it wouldn't have been me. Man, I would have been with Moses and Joshua. We've been hanging out in his tent. I'm not with these other guys, these losers. But you know what? Each one of us has, has done this in our lives in some way, in some measure. Each one of us has. And for us, this is a warning to us. And some of us, we may even have a hard heart, and we don't even know it. We don't even know if, we've got a, if we have a hard heart. I want to just, there's three things. I know time is moving on, but I want to just bring our attention to three things that I think will help us to discern whether or not we have a hard heart. Number one, talks about in verse 9, they put God to the test even though they saw his work. If our hearts are cynical, there's an underlying distrust of what God, who God is and what he can do. There's an underlying distrust of God. Yeah, I've seen it, God. I know you can do that, but like where I was, God, I don't, my buddy's beyond, beyond your reach. There's a cynicalness in our hearts, cynicism. Not only that, but we see in verse 10, there's disobedience. And I'm talking about a repeated walking in disobedience to God's word for your life and God's direction for your life. There's an area of sin that we've, we've put up with, that we've just said, well, it's just who I am. It's too hard. I don't like doing that. God, your, your, your work is impossible to do. Therefore, I'm going to walk in my own desires, in my own ways, and it will be in disobedience, but too bad. And so we begin to walk in disobedience. We've got a hard heart. I think the third thing I see, and this is from verses 1 and 6, if our worship is apathetic. We've come here today, and we just go through the motions. You might have been to church a hundred times, a million times in your life, and you come and it's just kind of, ah, who cares? I don't feel like singing. Tired. Even though I got an extra hour of sleep last night, I'm still tired. (laughs) Who knows what it is? But it's apathetic. It looks nothing like verses 1 and 6 talk about. We've got a hard heart. And today it says, if you hear His voice, this is the voice of the Lord it was the same for the people in Jesus' day as it is today. God's voice, Jesus is saying this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The word of God that went out from Jesus' mouth 2,000 years ago is the same 
word that resonates and rings out to us today. Come to me. Come to me. You're laden, weary, heavy-hearted. And here Jesus is. He's offering us eternal life and forgiveness of sins over and over and over again. This is his voice going out to us. And just like the Israelites, we may have gone to church our whole lives, had some good experiences in church. Maybe you've never, maybe you've been to church a couple times in your life, or this is the first time. You may have had some good church experiences. You may have, you may have gone on mission trips across the world. You may give generously. You may help serve. You may, you may, um, you may have done all these things for the Lord. Just like the Israelites, man, they could have came out on the other side of the Red Sea. And they could say, look, look at the work that God's done in us. Man, we waylaid Egypt. Man, we crossed the Red Sea like no, one, like no one's business. And look at what we did. We're giving each other high fives. And, I mean, just, but the thing is, their hearts were still hard. You know what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, is good news for us today. And it's not just for those who have never committed and given their lives to Christ and entrusted in Jesus for salvation. It is good news for all of us because no matter what we have done, no matter where we have gone, what we have said, what we have seen, the sins we've committed, Jesus' offer of forgiveness and clothing and righteousness is still good for us today. That we don't trust in our own work to come before God on our own merits and our own, look at look the way I've tithed. Look at the way I've given myself to serve. Look at how, I've, how I, we crossed that Red Sea. Look at, the way, look at all the, the things we've seen you do. Now, therefore, I'm acceptable to you. It's still the same offer no matter what we've done. It's still good news for us because we come before God based on what Jesus Christ has done, not on our own merits, not on our own goodness, none of those things. We only come because of Jesus Christ. And the same ground before the cross that we stood on at our conversion is still the same ground that we stand on today. We never, we never leave that. We never move from that. I want to end by just looking at this warning to us in these last few verses because I believe this is a good and a serious warning for us as a church. As I was working on this passage this week, I kind of, in my mind, kind of formulated, a, okay, you're either hardened, you have a hard heart, or you've got a soft heart and you're obedient, or you're kind of like in the middle where you're, some weeks it's kind of, eh, you know, I'll kind of, you know, I'll get into it, and some weeks I won't get into it, and just depending on how I feel, and if I got enough sleep the night before, and all those things. So there's, in my mind, I almost formulated two, three roads. Kind of the, the hardened heart, the soft heart, and kind of the maybe a little bit in between. And I feel like I've spent probably most of my life in this kind of middle road. But as I begin to look at this and begin to contemplate what it's saying here, there isn't three options. There's only two. Either your heart is soft or your heart is hard. There isn't a middle ground of maybe it is and maybe it isn't. If, it, if that's the case, then it is. He doesn't give us a third option here. There wasn't a couple of the Israelites who were kind of in the middle, kind of opted out of the God's judgment. It's one or the other. There's no neutral. 
Because of their hardness of heart, God sent them to wander in the wilderness, experiencing his, his judgment on their lives. As I think about this, I think, I don't want to wander. I don't want our church to wander. I want to give myself to the things of God half-heartedly, thinking that it's somehow okay because I'm in the middle. I want to give myself fully to the things of God. I want us as a church to give ourselves fully to the things of God. I want Benji to grow up in a church where we are passionately pursuing God. We're not just wandering in the wilderness, hoping that things are going to work out. We've done our duty. We've come to church. We've, we've sang some songs. Well, we kind of needed to, to do some stuff with serving, so we kind of did that, but uh, the whole time I'm wondering, when is this thing going to end? And hope they find more volunteers so I don't have to give, it, give as much. We don't want God to pass us over. We don't want that. We don't want that. As a church, I don't want that for us. I don't want us to give our lives for just mediocrity, hoping that it works out, and all the while being sent into the wilderness to wander, to do our own thing. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We believe that. We believe what God is using His church and His people to declare the glory of Jesus Christ across the earth, to bring a knowledge of the glory of God. I don't believe that's done in a way that is half-hearted, just kind of dabbling in the things of God. I don't believe it's done by, with a hard heart. I believe God is calling us to a radical obedience to Him and His Word, to not accept Christianity as usual, this is a serious warning. We should hear this and we should tremble. Am I, is my heart hard? Am I the people who will be sent to wander in the wilderness? Just because I've experienced your goodness and faithfulness in the past and seen you do some miraculous things doesn't mean I can just rest on that and go about my business as usual, doing my own thing. Well, I did some missions. I gave some money. That's what the Israelites did. They saw the work of God. They were in the middle of the work of God. God was working in their midst. It was awesome. For us as a church, we didn't plant here in Highland so that we can grow to be 100 people and pat ourselves on the back and be done and go home. We have just enough to make it by. Any more work than this is too hard. Therefore, I'm going to fill my life with a bunch of other stuff. And I can have my own life and have kind of this God thing going on on the side. And when I have time, I'll bring the God thing in, into my life. This needs to be an all-consuming passion of our lives. This is worth giving our lives to. This is the eternal purposes of God. Not fading, not going away. All the other things we fill our life with, it's going to go away. All the other hobbies, it's going to burn and go away. It's going to break down. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to collect rust and, 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 and dust and all these other things. But the purposes of God last forever. I want to challenge us as a church. Let's be the kind of people who, are, who hear the voice of the Lord and walk in obedience to it, not allowing our hearts to get hard. I feel like this is a call for us to radical discipleship. And I believe it starts with repentance. Guys, some of us here today, me included, I believe that we have 
areas of our lives that we have allowed to get hard towards the things of God. And we've just put up with it because that's the way it is. That's the way it's gone. And I believe God is calling each one of us to examine our hearts by his grace and mercy to repent and find freedom in life to walk in obedience to him. And so I want to call us. I want to challenge us. I want to encourage us. I don't want to wander. I don't want to give my life to, to just wandering in the desert as a church. Oh, I want us to move forward in all the things that God has for us. That we would be the people who would hear his voice and not allow our hearts to get hard, to be sent to wander. So I'm going to pray and close this out. Larry's going to lead us in communion. But I believe God is even now putting his finger in areas of our lives, in our hearts, where we need to come before him and lay those things down before God and ask to not only to the strength to walk in obedience, but the grace to be forgiven and turn from those sins and turn from that disobedience and walk in his ways. Lord, we don't want to be the people. God, we don't want to be the people who hear your voice and our hearts are hardened against you and we walk in cynicism and in disobedience. God, we ask this morning, God, that you would bring repentance in your kindness, that you would lead us to repentance. God, that in your mercy, you would lead us towards Jesus Christ, our hope and our Savior. Lord, that we would lay it all before you at your cross and receive mercy, grace, to walk in obedience. And Lord, so now we ask that by your Spirit, you would bring conviction of sin that leads to repentance. And God, that we would be the people who would heed your voice to us. Walk in in obedience for your glory, for the sake of our church and this community, for the children in this place, for the people who have yet need to hear your voice. Let it be so. In Jesus' name.